I think what you have said uh, repeatedly in different dimensions, we talk about migration, we talk about COVID, we talk about the economy, we talk about, uh, about uh, conflicts in the South, uh, impeding uh, essential flows to Europe, uh, making our, our life more difficult to us tourists, etc., etc. Uh, all of these things are things that uh, have something to do with the EU and uh, have something to do with Europe. There are many of them too big for Sweden to handle on its own in its uh, bilateral relationship to Turkey. Or, and uh, of course, when, when the Swedish foreign minister recently visited uh, her Turkish counterpart, she does, did so not in a in prim primarily Swedish capacity, but as, as incoming uh, chairperson of the, of the OEC. So clearly there is always a wider context in which Sweden uh, and even the EU have, has to act uh, in order to protect its interests. So what would you say is, um, when we talk about the, uh, bringing the issue back to the, to the compass needle that you saw in, uh, we put on the, on the cover of our book, I mean, indicated that we have to be aware that Swedish and European security is not just an issue of East-West, it's a, it's a combination of North-South and East-West. What is the most single most important uh, set of decisions that European uh, leaders need to focus on in the coming months in order to manage, not solve, but manage the Turkish variable? Mm. I think you put it uh, well when you said manage, not solve, but manage. Because this is, uh, this is within the realm of the achievable to find um, ways to solve things. Uh, I can compare by, again, uh, referring to the case of Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, because uh, Nagorno-Karabakh was a key example of a frozen conflict, so-called. Um, you uh, you solve you don't solve things, but you you freeze it. And many have been saying, by the way, about uh, Syria as a whole, or at least parts of Syria, that uh, the best case there is is for the, those conflicts to be frozen, because then it means uh, at least having uh, some breathing space. But as you and I know from from uh, historic examples, freezing something is not solving something. And in the case, but uh, it can be that freezing is the best option that one has uh, compared to what otherwise be uh, open conflict, which is uh, doing a lot of harm per, per definition. So um, it's not easy to, to say what, uh, uh, what would be, because the problem is that it's very hard to find consensus between EU countries and also between uh, between uh, the EU's collectivity and Turkey on the terms for an agreement uh, of a strategic relationship, uh, and uh, if, if uh, to the extent that uh, the consensus within the EU would be to offer Turkey a strategic relationship, uh, preferred uh, whatever you call it, but short of uh, the perspective of membership, it would be rejected angrily not only by the Turkish regime for procedural reasons, but also by, by representatives of the, of the civil society and, and, and other groupings within Turkey that are aspiring Democrats. 
because uh, only prospects of full membership gives the EU leverage on developments and it creates a, 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 a structure of incentives that can be actively used and useful to those affected. Uh, on the other hand, full membership uh, is, uh, uh, is uh, not in the cards for most EU countries. Uh, and then, uh, then things start to become problematic. So, so, so then what? Then what could you offer? I was noticing and uh, I was writing a piece for CIPRI the other week about uh, the, the extent to which at the time of the most recent summit of the, of the European Council, the European Council, uh, where there was also plans to, uh, for them to, to decide on sanctions, but there was, that was counteracted, especially under German uh, resistance movement within the EU, being proponents of uh, a more cautious line. So instead, they, they were making a sort of last-ditch attempt, I don't know if last-ditch is the right word, to find an accommodation with Turkey uh, on a relationship which would be based on the same things that were discussed uh, in connection with the migration crisis. Mm -hmm. Namely, a larger package uh, where the prospect of full membership would be revived, which is very hard for, for European capitals to accept, uh, where the, uh, uh, the customs union would be, uh, would be upgraded, modernized, broadened, where there would be a visa liberalization regime introduced and where uh, the EU would offer Turkey financial support for it to take the responsibility to deal inside Turkey of those 3.6 million Syrian refugees that were seen to be uh, stuck there. Because, and in order to prevent them from crossing the Aegean into Greece and then up, up in the corridor into uh, ending up in Sweden. So you have the migration link there and you have the uh, EU even as late as uh, this fall, again, uh, considering to offer Turkey those things which have been clearly seen to be unproductive. Uh, visa liberalization, not in the cars uh, really, apparently for most uh, and the customs union, yeah, that could be beneficial for both sides, but seemed to be a benefit to, to the unpopular regime in Turkey and hence and so forth. So there's a treading back and forth and uh, I don't think that anyone, uh, and by the way, this was all uh, means in order diplomatically to deal with the threat, otherwise to have to, to slap sanctions on Turkey over its aggressive activities where the Turkey needs to defend its member states, Greece and, and Cyprus. So we'll see now about the uh, upcoming uh, uh, summit in December. And the French minister was yesterday saying that it is now clear that more and more states are joining us in our willingness to meet this Turkish challenge with determination, i.e. sanctions. Um, but this is a step in a long-term long relationship. It's not easy to formulate, but Turkey is not going away. Turkey is staying there. Turkey is still located where it is and will remain a key to so many things. It's one of the biggest challenges of the EU. Yeah, and uh, to, to bring back the, the question to what's the most important thing to keep an eye on in, in terms of the ball, I, I, I'm reminded, I reminded myself about uh, uh, Bill Clinton's statement, it's the economy, stupid. But mm. in, in, when I'm listening to you, uh, I, I find that 
in this context, we, we need to remind people that we are talking about keeping an eye on the process or a number of interlinked processes. It's not, uh, when we discuss enlargement, for instance, it's not the end state of that, uh, of that, uh, that is most important for the European Union in terms of, of uh, influence and power and bargaining chips and all that. It's a, it's a process towards a me membership. That's when you have an influence on the, on the behavior of another country. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, if you cannot make the, the vision of a future Europe, European Union membership of Turkey credible, then of course you lose those bargaining chips. The, uh, when I say that uh, Turkey is uh, one of or even the most uh, important, challenge, difficult challenge for the EU, because it is also related to the Turkey-US relationship, where the, the European position is somehow dependent on developments there. Um, because Turkey, uh, for its historical reasons, resource needs reasons, they are actively involved in in everything where uh, I mean, all issues of importance to the EU in, in its southern dimension by way of military presence or otherwise being a, a very active player which means that either you try to f make accommodation with this more uh, more active Turkey or you try to push back on on Turkey uh, and it's uh, and then you, of course you have an eye on the, dif the difference between the current regime in Turkey and Turkey more generally. And uh, the fact that there is, uh, of course, uh, also you cannot push back a country altogether just because you don't like the regime too, too much. There is always this link. Uh, so um, you, will, uh, you will struggle, we will struggle, and that includes Sweden, struggle with the question of uh, accommodation, appeasement, or determination and pushback in an increasingly complex relationship. That's, that's my prognosis. Yeah, and this illustrates, I think, and that's my final word, that when uh, you see the trend towards more geopolitical approach in the EU discourse and the European discourse at large, also the UK, uh, this reflects the fact that uh, it's not just a matter of helping other countries to achieve their interest and achieve their goals uh, with Turkey and its surroundings. It's a much more complex set of tools that need to be um, applied in order to, to manage the process. We need to add also that there is also the NATO factor. Turkey has a full, full place at the tables on NATO. It has veto power. It's hugely tricky and important to deal with from a NATO perspective. That, that covers Sweden and, and, and Finland too. Michael, Michael Salim. Uh, we are doing yet another podcast together. Uh, this is certainly not the first one. We have made uh, quite a number of uh, podcasts before. But before entering to, uh, into that production and discussing what we're going to do today, uh, just to introduce you, uh, we, are, <clears throat> we are both uh, associated with the CIPRI, of course. We are both uh, having roles in the Royal Swedish Academy of War Sciences. Uh, you are also a distinguished associate fellow to the SUITS Institute, which is what? Uh, can you spell out the acronym? 
<laughs> Stockholm University Institute of Turkey Studies. Yes, and uh, for, for good reason, because you have followed this for a very, very long time, since the 90s. You have been Sweden's ambassador to Turkey. You have been Sweden's ambassador to Serbia. You have worked as EU special representative in the Western Balkans. Uh, you have uh, had roles in Sudan, etc. etc. So uh, <clears throat> not only been State Secretary for Defense in Sweden, but, but really uh, had a, a particular eye for the region that we're going to discuss today in a, in a broader sense. Uh, we, I should immediately share the screen to show, uh, uh, show those listening to us uh, that uh, there is a, a publication uh, which uh, we have uh, been doing, uh, we have uh, produced together. If you go to the uh, uh, website of the uh, Swedish, uh, the Royal Swedish Academy of War Sciences. You scroll down the article here by the governor of the uh, of the academy. He introduces a book called Engulfed in Flames, uh, which is our last uh, uh, product uh, from a project we are doing right now. And uh, you can even access the book uh, and scroll through the book here. And uh, if you go to the list of content, you will see that there is a, an item here called the Turkish variable. So that's what we are going to talk about today, the southern dimension of European security and with particular emphasis on Turkey. And uh, as I said before, uh, this is not the first thing we do on Turkey. We have done audio podcasts, uh, for instance, this one on SoundCloud, uh, seven or eight different podcasts on where we have discussed us during the last year, uh, the situation in and around Turkey and, and the southern dimension of European security. We have a similar YouTube uh, channel where we have introduced the book and uh, discussed the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean, both in Swedish and in, in English. And there is a website here which we maintain uh, which includes quite a lot of documentation uh, on this because there are constant articles and books being published and it's difficult to catch up. So to help people uh, situate themselves, uh, we, we thought, thought that it was important to put things on the, on the web that people can uh, look through themselves. Now, <clears throat> when I go to the topic of today's uh, presentation, uh, one can say that the first responsibility of governments, of course, is to prevent war and uh, take up a defense in depth uh, far away, if, if necessary, from borders in order to prevent that the war takes place on their own territories. And of course, um, uh, for that, you keep, uh, need to keep the eye on the ball. The problem we have, uh, Michael, which we have been discussing for now more than a year, in these podcasts is that there are so many balls up in the air at the same time, basically. And uh, of course, people are focusing on situation in the US, they're focusing on the situation <clears throat> in, uh, in, uh, re regarding COVID, they're discussing the situation as regards um, Russia, Ukraine, uh, recently Nagorno-Karabakh. So uh, why should they look at the, Turkey? 
Uh, and uh, this is a plaidoyer, I think, in this podcast uh, that, yes, we do need to look at Turkey because it's not just one Turkish variable. There are many Turkish variables here which uh, go in different directions to the Southern Caucasus, down to Libya, Eastern Mediterranean, and over to Iran, Iraq, and uh, Syria, of course, which we have described in the book. And um, you have promised to start by just giving us a first glimpse of uh, the parameters that we are talking in general here namely the, the, the questions uh, relating to how we should watch, uh, see the situation. Maybe you could say one minute about that. When you ask the basic question, what is Turkey, where is Turkey headed? Uh, one has to remind of the importance of Turkey given its history and its uh, geographic location. Uh, as has been pointed out so many times, uh, there is this north east-west dimension to this, the Bosporus dividing Asia with uh, Europe and the whole of Turkey providing a bridge in terms of various flows uh, from Asia to Europe, uh, not so much the other way around, but there is still uh, that also. And then you have uh, the north-south dimension. Uh, where Turkey combines in, with its territory uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea, sea areas uh, and of course the Middle East also, via the Black Sea to, uh, to Russia and Ukraine behind that. So you have uh, an extraordinarily important location which uh, makes Turkey somehow uh, indispensable uh, as a partner for various global players and there has been a struggle all along. There is also the fact that in realization of this and in realization of uh, the Ottoman past of, uh, of today's uh, Turkey, you have the saying by Atatürk at the time, uh, his uh, famous slogan, peace at home, peace uh, uh, in the world which has been uh, interpreted to mean that the strategic choice of Turkey, given its history and its location, is that uh, it cannot take steps ahead, forward, beyond the current borders established uh, at the Lausanne Treaty in 1923, by the way, uh, uh, nor can it take any step back. So a strategic defensive in those terms, defending the borders as they were established in 1923 uh, has been the classical uh, strategic line which compelled Turkey uh, in the early 50s to apply for NATO membership, which was granted. It was, had something to do with the uh, Korean War. It had something also to do with the Truman Doctrine uh, or how to prevent further Soviet expansion into the Balkans and, and in the direction south at the time. But this Atatürk line has become challenged now by the current regime and its position vis-a-vis uh, -vis issues pertaining to the region. So, okay. uh, I mean, uh, so... So what are you saying? That here we have a NATO member. And of course, we should mention that it's also, at least formally, a candidate uh, to become a member of the European Union since a long mm. time. It's, uh, it's a country with some 80 million inhabitants, I think. It is, uh, yes. Uh, mm. And it has a second 
largest standing forces in NATO. So it's mm. uh, more than half a million men, uh, if I understand correctly. So mm. it's a considerable actor uh, and a considerably important arena in various dimensions, as you just have said. So then, look, I mean, I'm a bit intrigued by the notion of a Turkish variable, which you, you and, and, and I write about in this book. Actually, we could talk it in, have it in plural if we want, uh, because you, what you are outlining here is not one variable. It's how in Turkey, in the actor and arena around Turkey, you, you see the, you can identify several very important variable, which dis, sort of define the ball here. <laughs> how, uh, and when you watch, have your eyes on the ball, uh, you need to have the, your eyes on these variables. So let's look at them. I mean, mm. you have outlined to me when you, when I was preparing for this podcast, you outlined for me four main uh, parameters here. One, of course, the, the one that you just started to discuss briefly, namely the doctrine, how it's been developed since the father, uh, Ataturk. Uh, uh, you have uh, the issue of balance, how Turkey balances between different actors. Uh, you have the issue of brinkmanship, uh, how um, uh, Turkey plays boldly now in, in a number of crucial arenas, one by one. And uh, many people don't see the whole picture here, so we are trying to give the whole picture. And fourthly, what this means in terms of timeline and key factors as they occupy world attention today. So can we start with perhaps uh, the doctrine issue? Mm. And if you yes. want to, I have the keywords down here, there might be more of them. And you yeah. need to, I think, uh, for our listeners and viewers, explain what the concepts mean, because they are not immediately uh, mm. obvious for people who mm. are not experts. Yeah. Uh, I, okay, uh, I would first uh, defend the concept of, uh, of the Turkish variable to be not so much uh, arenas of Turkish activities in various uh, neighboring countries, but the, the overall Turkish factor uh, that uh, other countries, uh, I would say, increasingly have to relate to, although Turkey represents for them a huge dilemma nowadays in various ways, which we'll, we'll come back into. So if we uh, have this uh, coherent concept of the Turkish variable or factor, but variable implies also that a variable can be dependent or independent, uh, where, where the Turkey factor is either the cause of things or the effect of other things, so to speak. So you have that, that concept. But uh, on the doctrine side, uh, I did mention the Ataturk line, uh, peace at home, peace in the world, uh, which uh, incidentally uh, was referred to by uh, some short statement during the coup, attempted coup night in, uh, in 2016, uh, before the, that coup attempt was crushed. Uh, as if uh, either genuinely or uh, ill ingenuinely wanting was the uh, intention to restore basic principles of Ataturk rather than to represent uh, the uh, preacher Fethullah Gülen's uh, preachings as has been alleged uh, ever since. 
So you have that uh, traditional line, and then you have uh, also the fact that uh, Atatürk, uh, after all, was the founder of uh, today's Turkey, uh, where uh, which had its the basis and its uh, its roots in the Ottoman Empire, where the Sultan was in Istanbul, and and the Turkish factor, Turkic factor, was uh, very strong in the whole region. Having lost, been on the losing side in the First World War, and in the ruins, therefore, of the loss in that war, and uh, also uh, the crumbling of the Sultanate and, and the Ottoman Empire, Atatürk, uh, um, in those ruins, created a new Turkey, which uh, strongly emphasized Turkey uh, under his principles, wanting to become a Western country, and therefore to be a secular society. Uh, secularism de defined uh, rather similarly to uh, contemporary France, by the way, uh, laicite, uh, separating strongly between between uh, church and state or religion and, and state affairs, which in the context of Turkey and its uh, overwhelmingly Islamic uh, culture is a very controversial thing to do. So you have the foreign policy, strategic defensive, you have the balancing act, and you have the secular uh, Kemalist uh, uh, teachings of Atatürk. And from those roots, you have uh, Erdogan, the current president, who came to power after reforming a formerly uh, clearly Islamist uh, uh, political party into a modern pro-European, pro-EU uh, um, party, AKP, uh, and then gradually transforming it into today's situation where Erdogan is conducting policies which are much less secularist, much more Islamist, and much more uh, internationally, internationally uh, uh, aggressive or asserting, assertive in the region. So there, are, there is a long trend. We can talk a lot about this, this uh, evolution from Atatürk to Erdogan. Part of this, uh, is uh, uh, connected to the concept of irredentism. Uh, the word as, as, a, as a term means uh, an urge to re recover lost territory. And of course, if, you, if the point of departure is uh, Ottomanism or the Ottoman Empire, where the Istanbul uh, regime controlled uh, large parts of the region, including northern Iraq and, uh, and parts of Syria and what have you, uh, all the way down to Yemen, by the way. It is, it is uh, noted and often referred to also as a reason for today's conduct of more aggressive foreign policy uh, to, to uh, redeem lost, lost territories compared to the Ottoman Empire. So you have that component uh, another component uh, then uh, often referred to is neo-Ottomanism and also pan-Islamism. Islam in this case being Sunni Islam, contrary to, uh, to uh, Shia Islam uh, dominated by, by, by Iran. But also, as we know, within Sunni, you have the, the various branches. And in the case of the model of Islam conducted by or conceived by the regime in, in Ankara, it is close to the so-called Muslim Brotherhood branch or branch of Sunni Islam. Uh, and uh, neo-Ottomanism, of course, is restoring either uh, rhetorically or practically 
the the glory of the old uh, and the and the uh, extent of dominance that uh, that Istanbul could uh, conduct uh, in those times. So, so uh, I mean, what you, um, Mikael, so yeah. that means that what happened after the Arab Spring or Arab uprisings, whatever you call it, was a big disappointment for for Erdogan. Uh, just to you mentioned the Muslim bro- Brotherhood, uh, uh, Erdogan well, had he, hoped had hoped mm. that it would have been much more successful in establishing itself in Egypt and other countries. Well, that was uh, that was uh, an, a reason why Turkey, not least under the then foreign minister Davutoglu, who is a scholar who has developed those uh, concepts, uh, seeing the Arab Spring as an opening for more uh, active uh, Turkish foreign policies compared to the Ottoman line. Uh, and then, as you say, there was the uh, the counter wave, uh, which was uh, a disappointment for Turkey. Uh, Assad did not fall immediately to the Muslim Brotherhood dominated uh, Sunni majority uh, uprising in Syria. Uh, rather, uh, the whole thing became in Syria became a, a protracted uh, tragedy. And similarly, in Egypt, uh, there um, the the coming to power of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, through the name of Morsi uh, was ousted in this in the summer of uh, 2013, uh, which com- coincided, by the way, in time with the uprising on a different basis uh, in Turkey. So yes, you have a series of disappointments compared to expectations at the time. But even today, you can say that uh, in spite of those uh, disappointments, uh, to some extent caused by these disappointments, the current, the contemporary, very active Turkish foreign policy uh, uh, has everything to do, do with those disappointments. Yeah, and, I, should, and... I, should, I should have added also uh, from your foreign picture that the fact of, of the Kurds, Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to yeah. go back to the map there, uh, Mikael, yeah. because I think you, you might wish to, to tell uh, our uh, viewers that the Tur- Kurdish issue is much more than Turkey, so to say. Mm-hmm. I just want to mm-hmm. show the map. So you have the Kurds in, in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Turkey, of course. You have them in Syria. You have them in Iraq. Mm-hmm. You have them even to a certain extent in the Caucasus and in Iran, don't you? Yes. And a large diaspora. Mm. So it's a huge issue. It's the biggest uh, nation uh, or or people that never got its own state. Yeah. It's a a phrase uh, sometimes uh, used. Uh, Maybe there is competition, but but, uh, so much of the dynamics of the region Uh, also after the, or well, not least after the Arab Spring, has everything to do with the struggle between uh, pan-Kurdish uh, forces uh, and the, the counter forces to that led by Turkey, being afraid of the, uh, of the irredentism, so to speak, of, of, of Kurds. Yeah. Uh, in view of their dominance in southeastern Turkey, in view of their dominance in northern Syria, in view of their dominance also in northern Iraq, less uh, dominance in other countries, but still in those parts of contemporary countries, they are a significant factor. And the need, there is a need for historical 
um, deal between the current states and the uh, aspiration for statehood by Kurds, and especially uh, the case of Turkey in this regard is a key because uh, the struggle that has been up has had its ups and downs ever since 1984. Mm. Uh, it's incredibly important to the understanding also of the prospects of democracy and rule of law and human rights in Turkey itself. Yeah, and, and uh, maybe we should also mention there the, that there is not only a strong link uh, through NATO to the United States from Turkey, but there is also a strong link from the Kurds in different countries, including mm. notably in Iraq, I mean, uh, uh, and, and the United States, and the, the specific protection that the United States has provided to, to mm. the Kurds in northern parts of, of Iraq, uh, etc., etc. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not uh, what Kissinger would call a balanced uh, <laughs> triangle. So it's, it's a very, mm. very unstable and difficult triangle to balance for the United States as well, I suppose. Mm. Because uh, Kurds have been seen by the US in its problematic Middle East policies to be partners in the struggles, first with uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, regime in, in Iraq, and then against the Assad regime in, in Syria, mm. uh, where clearly uh, Kurds have been seen as uh, net assets and partners in those struggles. Uh, complicated as these are. In the case of Turkey, uh, it's a little uh, more difficult because there has been an armed struggle ever since 1984, uh, in turn resulting from the military coup in Turkey at that time and the reaction to that. And of course, uh, uh, that has meant that Turkish foreign policy has uh, had as a main objective to have other countries accept to stamp uh, the PKK, the organization representing armed resistance to the government of Turkey as a terrorist organization. So that is that has been one thing, but there has been periods also of reconciliation talks. Uh, and the most recent one, which uh, was, went very far at the time when uh, President uh, Erdogan felt that he would be able and willing to finally provide a solution to the Kurdish issue in Turkey before it broke down, partly as a result of conflicts in neighboring Syria. So everything uh, is somehow connected in a very complicated way. But, but for the West, the Kurdish issue has always been a, a complicator in its relations with Turkey. Yeah. So if we look more <clears throat> carefully now at the, at the different parts of the variable here, uh, you, have, uh, you started by outlining uh, the fact that, and I actually added Ukraine here. <laughs> uh, uh, I just read uh, an article today about military cooperation in drone development with, between mm -hmm. Ukraine and, and Turkey, and things are happening here which are for many incredible in this sense and maybe you want to mention it but you have mm. a balancing act here mm. us nato eu ukraine and russia mm. and uh, many people have of course difficulty to keep a clear eye on what does it what does this mean is there is there a, is it a stable balance or is it a constant shifting balance mm. I think one should, uh, uh, this by the way is a very good picture. Um, 
once one should uh, uh, look upon this question from the point of view of the of the western countries uh, and then on the from the point of view of turkey separately uh, in, in a way because balance is uh, is uh, in the eyes of the beholder in terms of definition but clearly uh, turkey has always been seen as as being as as important as problematic in many ways because of its size and because of its location, but, but also in view of its uh, ethnic, religious, etc. Uh, composition. Uh, Turkey is not only large and uh, with, uh, as we said before, 83, 84 or so uh, million inhabitants, uh, but they are nowadays 99% um, uh, Muslim country. Uh, it wasn't like that uh, in the 20s when Atatürk formed his new Turkey. There was a sizable uh, uh, population in the southeast, which was uh, which was uh, Christian. The um, Syriacs there uh, was a Greek population there, and there were Armenians in in the uh, survivors from the Holocaust or whatever you call it, uh, the events in 1915. So uh, the, the sheer composition of Turkey with a clear tendency in recent decades to become more and more Islamic in composition. Mm -hmm. And then of course you have the government also being more, more Islamist as a, as a policy. So you have that which makes it uh, an odd bird uh, within NATO, I mean Turkey. Um, so uh, again you have... Uh, a, 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 an illustration that importance coincides with being problematic. Similarly, of course, for the EU uh, to have uh, the mighty Turkey uh, Islamic country become a member of of uh, the EU club uh, is uh, not easy for anyone, especially not certain countries in, in Europe. But whenever there is hesitation on those grounds, then of course it is used in Turkey as a uh, as a propaganda item, uh, criticizing the uh, the EU for being a Christian club, which uh, doesn't welcome others. Although, in the in the case of many European countries, Islam is clearly the second biggest religion. That, that applies, by the way, to Sweden too, as Ingmar Carlsson has uh, pointed out. Yes. Mike, can I interject there? I mean, for those yes. uh, those who are interested in uh, the way ahead for the EU. I think it, mm. you need to mention here uh, from that perspective that the EU clearly in, in later years are continuing its road towards majority voting. Uh, it goes in the direction of supranationalism based on majority voting where not every member state has a veto on what is happening. Now, we know right now as we have the, tr uh, the, the struggle over the over the, uh, the corona package and the multi-annual financial perspective in the EU that individual countries try to find a way to put the veto on the way ahead. But in reality, what is, uh, what is very important is how many votes you have. So here you have a crucial balancing problem for the EU. Mm. Taking in a country with 80 million inhabitants definitely means a shift in the balance of votes both in the European Parliament and, and of course, in, uh, in, the, in the Council itself. So it's a, it's, um, 
it's increasingly uh, a ut utopist <laughs> proposal mm -hmm. to bring in Turkey. Still, many countries, including Sweden, of course, insist that this is the way we should look at things, the development through the future. Mm. There is a lingering belief on the part of several countries uh, that uh, only through credible enlargement policies can there be a, a viable uh, European Union. I think that position has been weakened, uh, but it's hard to admit uh, that this is in fact a weakening case uh, because enlargement has been seen as a twin concept to, to deepening of, of, of uh, ties. There must be some kind of link. But clearly the case of Turkey represents uh, uh, test the final test to those questions and their validity and viability I, I really I really think so but if you have Turkey on the one hand uh, going increasingly authoritarian in its domestic policies and a Turkey which is also uh, seeing its economic base uh, after the first 10 years of a huge success economically uh, in the early uh, years of the AKP and Erdogan regime. And then a Turkey that has been more assertive based on expectations, as you said, uh, from the Arab Spring and the openings for a more uh, active role in the Middle East, but also seeing that uh, uh, an ambitious regime uh, being less tempted to be taking orders from, from Washington and Brussels uh, when defining its interests and when conducting its policies, and therefore finding itself uh, in, involved in the art of balancing, uh, such that the uh, issue now is uh, uh, very much what uh, can the how should the e, how should NATO look upon Turkey? Uh, when Turkey is in, a, in an acute conflict, uh, conflict uh, uh, although not military, but uh, certainly political, with neighboring Greece over issues pertaining to, uh, to the um, demarcation lines in the Aegean and uh, Eastern Mediterranean Sea areas, uh, and uh, a situation when, therefore, Greece is... Uh, uh, Rearming. Uh, I read yesterday that they are uh, acquiring for purchase both of French Rafale and US F 35 planes to balance its uh, military might against the mightier Turkey, uh, which, as you say, is uh, NATO's second biggest. But the, the, uh, the Turkish uh, army has been heavily influenced also by the by the coup attempt in uh, 2016 and the purge is following it such that they hardly have pilots for all of their uh, planes in the F-16 fleet that they have. Mm -hmm. So that uh, also is, is part of this balancing game. And, and also uh, concerning Russia, uh, after all, Russia is a neighboring country, but Turkey is very dependent on supplies of gas through the Black Sea from from Turkey, Turkey is a builder, although it is in question now of uh, Turkey's first uh, nuclear uh, power plant in, in the southern coast. Uh, and uh, Turkey has chosen 
for a host of reasons stated to go for a Russian-made um, air defense system, S-400, which is seen to be incompatible with uh, the NATO equipment otherwise, and certainly uh, if they were to have uh, um, continued as a partner with the F-35 uh, plane project, from which they have since been expelled. And as you say in this picture also, uh, in this overall balancing game, which is, uh, is, uh, has components of real brinkmanship, there is also balancing Ukraine and Russia, the two big neighbors uh, at, the, um, at the Black Sea. And for all the cooperation between Russia and Turkey nowadays in Syria uh, and elsewhere, and over these uh, big supply questions, there has been parallel been a development of relations between Ukraine and, uh, and Turkey and uh, defense uh, agreements between def uh, Ukraine and Turkey which uh, should be observed with some concern in, in Moscow. So you have a Turkey more forward-leaning, having decided to, to uh, promote by, by force, by determination at least, its interests, and, and in doing so has found itself in, in conflict not only with neighbors, but also with its traditional allies and, and the new uh, part allies, uh, Russia and Ukraine. And this is where we are right now. And the fascinating thing, uh, when we look at it as, it, as the question uh, is illustrated by today's news or the news of the latest days, if you look at, at the Nagorno-Karabakh, which is the latest discussion, a, a, a very dramatic and, and, mm. and, 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 uh, and moving and moving situation mm. from, from a humanitarian perspective. What you, what you have here uh, with Nagorno-Karabakh is one example of the many cases of brinkmanship that we have, you have outlined in our small book, uh, Engulfed in Flames, uh, a fifth case, if you like, uh, to, in addition to to the ones that we, we outline in, in, the, in the book. Mm. There, right now, uh, to take the absolute latest news that I saw this morning, you have uh, the Ulyanovsk Brigade from the Russian Federation, a 2,000 highly trained special forces entering as a peacekeeping entity into the Nagorno-Karabakh scene. Now being complemented by a Turkish expressed desire also to provide peacekeeping troops from its large standing forces to uh, the area. First place, of course, the Aziri, uh, from the Assyrian position, the Assyri, mm. and sharing some sort of coordination role. That is this what we call peacekeeping? Is <laughs> maybe the first question one might put, but. It clearly illustrates the, the enormous uh, developments here uh, that we hardly possible to believe that we have we have had waited for such a long time for something to happen down there in Nagorno-Karabakh since the mid 90s. Basically, we expected something to happen, but did we expect this to happen? So maybe you can run through quickly 
or not so quickly if you find the, the interesting things to say in addition mm. to what we already said in the book. So say, but, mm. but I mean, I find this, uh, this must, I think, uh, ring the bell for many people that we are not just talking about the static situation down, down there, so to say, which is managed by people which have no specific relationship to our security. I should then begin by saying that the Turkish parliament, uh, which has been uh, really weakened uh, since the, uh, the Turkish uh, constitutional changes introducing the presidential system with Erdogan as, a, as the only, the sole voice of power, uh, but they uh, they uh, welcome technically or or allowed technically yesterday for for sending Turkish troops to uh, Nagorno-Karabakh to uh, upon invitation by Azerbaijan. Uh, I I my recollection uh, from my time in the Ministry of Defense uh, in the early 90s is that the concept of having Russians uh, or the Russian uh, then. Uh, continuation of the of, of the Soviet Union you remember with this uh, it was called OSS at the time yeah. was cons- con- was a competition rather uh, with uh, ideas within the Minsk group for the OSCE to be the provider of uh, peacekeeping troops whenever there should be a demand for and an opening for that as, as part of a solution to the to, to the uh, to the war fair uh, happening in the early 90s. So I, I'm not entirely surprised that this, uh, it all ended up uh, in, in Russia being uh, the player of this. In the case of Turkey uh, now, um, the interesting thing is that uh, clearly Turkey helped Azerbaijan militarily win this war, uh, if winning uh, is defined as uh, having more or less reoccupied the occupied territories uh, surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh and even uh, chipping off um, part of of Nagorno-Karabakh proper. And then you have the Lachin corridor combining, connecting Nagorno-Karabakh with with Armenia proper. And then you have the issue which uh, uh, has been discussed uh, over the years of how to connect the Nachichevan exclave uh, to uh, to uh, between Turkey and then on via that territory in with the corridor to uh, Azerbaijan proper. So you have uh, you have a situation in that region with a with a, a, a disconnect between various national and regional aspirations. I am surprised uh, that it should have been so impossible over so many years uh, to find a more more lasting solution. On the other hand, it's a classical case, Lars Erik, of a war uh, ending up with one party winning, and the other at that time it was the Armenian side, with discreet help from from the West, uh, winning against the disorderly Azeri troops at the time leaving a post, uh, post-World War I kind of perceived uh, unfairness yeah. uh, and uh, clearly paving the way for revanchist uh, forces on the one side and uh, defensive uh, tendencies on the other side. 
uh, one side really wanting to or making it a national existence necessity to recover lost territories and for the other side uh, to at all costs defend the gains of the war at, uh, at large cost. So it's, it's a classical thing. How do you find compromise in, in uh, conflicts like this when, when, it is, uh, when the goals of the two sides are 100% incompatible? Yeah. Uh, so uh, now we have this, and the Russians uh, were not pleased with the new prime minister in Armenia, so they somehow sat on their hands, not doing much, allowing instead Turkey to be the intervening party on the side of, of the Azeris, not least using a new Turkish uh, drone technology uh, to make the situation militarily untenable for the Armenian and the, and the Nagorno forces. And then finally, uh, the Russians intervened, uh, having uh, taken so much time as a means of uh, punishing the in Moscow unpopular prime minister, uh, but also preventing the Azeris from winning totally, recovering yeah. the whole of Nagorno-Karabakh and maybe even threatening Armenia proper. Uh, but uh, apparently Russia was not willing to allow Turkey to be part of the peacekeeping force as such, but they have, uh, as a compromise, uh, invited Turkey to send uh, some more reduced force yeah. in order to be uh, observing the center operations for the Russian peacekeeping activities. So that's where we are now. And it has given rise, sorry, it given rise to a, an international discussion. So who is the winner and who's the loser of yeah. the war? Yeah, well, I, I, what I'm told by military experts that I've been talking with is that uh, we are likely to see a lot of uh, things being, uh, articles being written about this uh, war, in addition to what we have already seen the Caspian Sea being the, a launching base for, for missiles uh, directed to the Syrian uh, theater. Uh, mm. We have the question of, uh, of uh, private military, uh, uh, which we have not had as a major issue here yet, but the private military uh, groups like Wagner Group and others being used in Syria and Libya. And now on top of this, we have these... Uh, uh, suicidal drones, so to say, which are which are sort of completely changing the 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 assumptions probably on the on the Armenian side that they could hide, you know, in the mountains or whatever, you know, you could use the terrain, which is mm -hmm. very difficult to protect yourself. And so we are getting close to the discussion we had in the Golan in the past about zero one effects so that new technology is and it's not just a, you know conventional technology i suppose we are talking about very high level and that we now also have cooperation between turkey and the ukraine things are happening here which uh, which uh, indicate that we are talking about um, mm. uh, a much more dynamic battlefield than we had uh, we saw for instance in the in the balkans uh, uh, 15 mm. or 20 years ago I need to add here, Lothric, that uh, that the case you mentioned drones, uh, which is a hugely important thing, where Turkey has uh, had an advanced industrial development. It's based on Western technology, but still somehow national Turkish application, which they have been uh, using in their various wars. Uh, and you have the sketch here. 
but it's also the fact that Turkey, with its uh, campaign against uh, the radical Kurds, the PKK in Turkey itself, and in the uh, uh, mountainous areas of northern Iraq, they have had an element of practical training uh, using drones in such a way, which uh, in the, which is something adding to the pure technology, using drones as a warfare uh, instrument, uh, uh, changing the uh, the scene in various ways, has been hugely important also in its application in in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, area because they have a lot of training of uh, of uh, active use, lethal use uh, in, in the various war scenes in Syria. Uh, Turkey also, as we have seen, uh, is accused of and uh, or, or seen to have been using Syrian mercenaries also in the uh, war zone of, of Nagorno-Karabakh yeah. and this area, like in Libya. So there is drones and there are mercenaries uh, which have been instruments of power projection by Turkey. And on top of that, we have, uh, again, I think it's, it's worth repeating for those of us who follow the Swedish defense debate and what the number of people that we are talking about in, in, in European armed forces. We are talking about a standing, more or less standing army in Russia of seven, eight hundred thousand people. And we have a standing army in Turkey of more than one half a million people. So we're talking about large large, again, very large uh, uh, forces that support these uh, uh, rather new and, uh, and uh, technologically advanced uh, methods of warfare. Mm. Still that large uh, army, as you say, uh, is being depleted or at least, uh, least uh, risks overextending since it is being used in southeastern Turkey, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in the Eastern Mediterranean on the, on the naval side, in Libya, although there are now peace talks, and definitely in Northern Iraq. So um, it, is, uh, it is really, it is large, but it's also overextended. And the costs of all those war, warfares, although uh, each being minor, but still lethal, is in the order of uh, $50 billion or so, yeah. meaning depleting the Turkish economy further. And we come back to the economy in just a short while, but, but um, when you look at these five um, uh, arenas or, or, uh, or engagement areas, uh, can we say that there is a stable outcome in sight in any of these five areas? Or is Turkey forced to plan for a further investment into trying to protect its interests in all these five areas for the unforeseeable future? Yeah, it's a very, very good, good question. Uh, I, I don't think there is a clear answer to that. The, the aim of all those interventions, uh, which are historically unthinkable, if you compare with the doctrine of Ataturk, for example, uh, having a Turkish uh, lethal... Uh, presence, uh, not only, by the way, in these areas where there is, has been or is uh, open conflict, uh, but also uh, there is a military, Turkish military presence in Somalia, uh, in Qatar, and, uh, in, and elsewhere, representing uh, expansionism of power projection more generally. 
The aim is uh, regime establishment, regime consolidation, but also promotion of uh, Turkish say in the in the in the salons of uh, uh, global diplomacy. Uh, a request from Turkey to be respected as as a, as a counterpart interlocutor whenever important decisions are being made. So insisting on relevance uh, by by fiscal force uh, in a in a way. But it's also brinkmanship as a title states. Uh, and for me, um, uh, I, I am curious to see uh, whether uh, Erdogan as president will actually succeed because uh, those interventions have had any, everything to do also, of course, with regime consolidation at home. Uh, lack of legitimacy or reduced legitimacy at home because of economic hardships and uh, and the uh, harshness over human rights have made it necessary to have a sort of an uh, international adventurous line to enhance popularity. You have th this aspect also. But there is no facet in these, uh, in these conflicts. And, um, and uh, I think that Turkey uh, really, uh, for, for want of, of a capability to step back and to compromise, we'll see now with Biden coming in, as a factor, whether there will be a willingness on the side of Turkey to make concessions. But for, for an autocrat uh, that many uh, see uh, Erdogan as uh, compromise is hard. So one risk being stuck uh, where one is, because you cannot, you cannot risk defeat, because defeat is impossible to combine with the regime consolidation. So you have, you have all those factors uh, playing in it. So we look at it now from a timeline and factor perspective. Uh, you just mentioned Biden, clearly uh, uh, to a certain extent an unknown from the Turkish side. I don't think that uh, no one, anyone really knows what, what uh, a Biden administration will do exactly. Uh, we, we don't know how much uh, the EU will um, build up uh, a, a united uh, perspective. They are supporting the Greek uh, uh, views on some of these issues that we, 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 we hinted to. We didn't have time to go into them in detail before. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you mentioned also the economy. Maybe you could say a word about, I mean, clearly what, what the Americans, what, what the EU does uh, do in terms of, of the economic situation as well. And uh, there is an agreement on the migration issue, etc. Or mm. there are many economic uh, variables here, which also go into the picture. And you said mm. that there is an overextension on the military side. So what does this mm. mean? And you have mentioned in your outline to me about this podcast, also the issue of the anniversary that you might mm. wish to discuss. Mm. Yeah. Okay, let me uh, give it a try. The anniversary, uh, anniversary thing is... an. Uh, uh, 2023, that's 100 years anniversary of the formation of, of today's Turkey, Atatürk creation, uh, turning more and more Erdoganist, uh, as we've seen. And in view of this, already in 2011, um, then Prime Minister Erdogan coined the term the new Turkey, Yeni Turkey, uh, and defined it to be uh, the goal uh, before the anniversary, that by the time of the anniversary, uh, Turkey, for, for, for example, should have become uh, uh, or entered the top 10 of world economies. 
uh, at the time of the coining of that term, uh, the new Turkey to be established at the time of the anniversary, uh, the, the regime, uh, the AKP regime had uh, multiplied uh, domestic product per capita from two to ten thousand dollars which was an incredible achievement, partly as a result of the approximation with the EU at the time. So there is, a, there is parallelism here. Uh, now, of course, things have become much, much more complicated, such that uh, as we speak now, uh, Eric, the um, GDP per capita is uh, less than what it was um, before 2010. Oh. Uh, and uh, Turkey is among is the nineteenth of the uh, world economies. Uh, just uh, just making it for the uh, G20 club, and uh, with threats of being uh, out of that team uh, as well. Um, now this is a long story, but uh, they have been adding an, a, a negative curve in recent uh, years, and uh, the Turkish leader, for example, has uh, you you would uh, have to pay three liras for a US dollar uh, only three, four years ago. And today uh, it has been uh, even uh, down to eight and a half liras for a US dollar, meaning that the Turkish lira has lost, uh, it has lost uh, 30% uh, or so of its value even this year only. Meaning, of course, uh, and also in view of the fact that Turkey has financed its uh, its uh, GDP growth uh, to a large extent by by foreign loans uh, in the for the construction industry, uh, building up the fancy city suburbs of Istanbul and Ankara and all those things, and and this has created a, a debt bubble from the, from the corporate side. So there are many things which. Uh, which makes the Turkish economy weaker than most uh, even emerging economies. Uh, but it has also made Turkey uh, extremely dependent on investors in Europe and the financial market dominated by the US. And this is what has made uh, the, uh, the uncertainties uh, over US relations with Turkey so sensitive, uh, sensitive and now that you have Biden coming in, Biden apparently has no direct personal uh, link to Erdogan as Trump did have for reasons uh, largely unknown. Uh, and there are uh, several sanctions uh, being uh, sort of uh, agreed upon in, in Congress, stopped only by the ex executive of Trump uh, for the time being. And uh, you have the S-400 issue, you have the uh, large Turkish bank being threatened by, by sanctions as well, the Halk Bank, uh, and you have the Armenian genocide issue. You have a, you have a whole portfolio. And what about the nuclear issue? I mean, you have And what about the nuclear issue? Uh, that is a less pre prevalent thing, but uh, under the principle of nuclear sharing, as you know, uh, there has been um, uh, storage of uh, B-61 B bombs at the, at the Injilic base in Turkey, uh, southeast. That base uh, has been controversial in many ways. Uh, it's, uh, the base commander was linked to the coup attempt uh, in uh, 2016, 
which meant that the, the base turned closed for uh, for 24 hours before things were clarified at the time. It is also the uh, it has been the indispensable base for operations into Syria and Iraq, uh, from NATO and from the U.S. So there are many things here, but uh, also a debate, both general nuclear sharing debate, but also specific Turkey mm. debate about whether it's reasonable for the for the U.S. to keep those bombs, uh, nuclear bombs, uh, in that base. So why are they there if they cannot be used anyway? Because the uh, Turkish F-16 fleet is not capable of transporting them. So there are huge issues there. I don't see them as acute uh, for the time being, but there are other things between the U.S. and Turkey that are acute. And where the uh, entry of Biden threatens Turkey with uh, with a significant deterioration because there will be no longer a Trump personal uh, locking factor, blocking factor uh, in uh, concerning concerning the S-400 and concerning sanctions generally. So a uh, huge opening there. And, and COVID and uh, the indirect effects of COVID, tourism and, and all that. Yeah, and then you have uh, the factor of uh, COVID, which in turn uh, has affected tourism. Tourism is a hugely important uh, sector of uh, of the Turkish economy in the 50 billion or so dollar uh, order. And of course, the COVID thing has reduced uh, tourism a lot. Uh, the, the wave of terrorist acts in Turkey in the 2015, 16, 17 also reduced and the conflict between Turkey and, and Russia at the time when Turkey shot down a, a, a Russian S-24 plane on the border with Syria. All those things has made, has made the otherwise extremely booming Turkish uh, uh, climate-oriented because uh, the Turkish uh, climate is uh, excellent for tourism um, sector booming. So, so you have now huge threats from two tourism uh, to the Turkish economy, making it even more uh, vulnerable also to sanctions threats from from its Western partners. And I have mentioned the the threat of US sanctions. We'll see what Biden will bring. But there is also discussion as as late as uh, yesterday, there was a further mention of of, uh, EU sanctions proposed actively by France. The French EU minister was uh, was um, speaking in a podcast uh, about the uh, the imminence of such EU uh, sanctions over the uh, Turkish activities in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, where Turkey had been acting acting uh, to be in a way perceived to be aggressive, uh, because Turkey feels that it needs to change the status quo that has been established uh, in terms of ownership of the of the issues that go all the way back to the Lausanne Treaty when the borders were drawn uh, between Greece and, and Turkey. But you have also the festering Cyprus question. Uh, Erdogan yesterday visited uh, the uh, ghost town Barosha, which was a tourist uh, take attraction at the time. It's been standing empty since uh, the Turkish in- invasion in 1974 and now Erdogan is there and they have opened this town in defiance of the UN declaration which has stated that Barosha will be part of a larger deal 
cannot be solved by by one-sided imposition, but the situation in Cyprus is now such that the the new prime minister, the president, the new president, together with Turkey, are proposing a two-state solution, which, which is unacceptable to the Greek side. So, there are many such issues uh, poisoning the atmosphere also between the EU uh, and uh, and Turkey and the. Um, Foreign ministers of France and Germany yesterday published an article where they are talking about the need to uh, deal with determination with uh, uh, aggressive acts by Turkey. So uh, you have a negative trend right now, uh, which um, will see major changes. But in response to those, you see also a lot of of uh, Turkish uh, active imposition of military force, trying to uh, defend and prom promote its interest by active force.